Indeed, we will praise your name forever. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, we love you, Lord. And we give thanks to you this day for who you are, for what you've done as we celebrate the coming, the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, to this world. We thank you and praise you in his precious name. Amen. Please have a seat. For those of you who love Christmas on Sunday, somewhat disappointing news. It will be in another, another 11 years before we see this again. Even though it averages every seven years, there's this pesky thing called leap year that uh, this time will cause an 11-year cycle. So what that means is I will be nearly 80. So add 11 years to your calendar and, uh, and you'll see when you'll have that. Merry Christmas. Thank you for carving time for those of you who came out last night and for those of you who are here uh, this morning. Uh, really, we wish you a, a blessed uh, day as we celebrate time with the uh, uh, Lord uh, together. There's been several times over the years since we've been here that Barbara and I have uh, really enjoyed listening to Handel's Messiah, or at least portions of it, uh, especially uh, true when we would go and see Pam uh, and, uh, and hear her sing in the choir. Most everyone is familiar with uh, Handel's Messiah in some way, and I heard this some time ago, so it's not really original with me, but I thought that I would entitle today's uh, message, Getting a Handle on Christmas. <laughs> Here are a few things you may not have known about Handel's Messiah. Although if you know things about church music in general, you probably could guess uh, some of this. Handel's Messiah was actually written for Easter, not Christmas. But it never really caught on during Easter time. For some reason or another, it caught on Christmas and so found it's now found its niche there. Second, unlike what we see today, Messiah, the Messiah was written for about 20 musicians and about 15 singers. Why? Because Handel wanted to put that music within the capability of almost every parish out there. In other words, now it's, uh, we see these great huge orchestras and choirs, but it was actually written uh, for a much, uh, much smaller group. Third, he wrote the entire thing, depending on who you read, in as little as 18 days, but no more than 24. So essentially he wrote this thing in, in three weeks. And even though some of the work he had already done uh, such as, for unto us a child is born, it's nevertheless a staggering testimony to the inspiration and the musical genius of Handel. In fact, while he was working on it, he claimed uh, to have been brought to tears by visions of uh, angels as, as he worked. And interestingly enough, Handel did a an extraordinary thing. And while we don't know where the inspiration uh, came from, 
I'm inclined to believe it was uh, from the book of uh, Luke when Jesus was walking with two sojourners down a road to Emmaus and he began to explain the things concerning himself from where? Beginning in Moses and right through the Old Testament. So Handel tells the story of Christmas almost exclusively through the Old Testament. We heard a little bit of that last night, but we're not going to look at the same thing. But we are going to look in the same book. He wrote of Jesus' life from texts that were written 700 years before the Lord lived. This uh, Messiah, Handel's uh, Messiah, was so large and covered so many scriptures that around 1780, John Newton, you'll recall the author of Amazing Grace on the centenary of Handel's birth, preached a series of 50 sermons. In other words, an entire year he spent on the texts that make up Handel's Messiah. Isaiah 40 figured prominently. And at Christmas time, I mean, it's only fitting that we reflect on the birth of Christ and the hope that it brings, which is what we see in Isaiah 40. And according to the Gospels, especially uh, Matthew and, and Luke, the birth of Christ confirmed the hope, the promise of the ages that the prophets had proclaimed to Israel, the promise that we had all waited for. And yet, even though Christ has come, believers, those of us who know him and trust him, must continue to wait in hope for the promises until they reach their ultimate fulfillment. And so we still hold on to this idea of hope because we, we have to. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that faith, hope, and love are the marks of the believer, but that one day only love will remain. So apparently our faith will not be needed when we see Christ face to face. Apparently our hope will not be needed when we are dwelling with him in the new creation. But as Aragorn said, today is not that day. One need only look at the news uh, today to see that faith and hope are required desperately until Christ returns to make all things new. Uh, frequently in our lives, we use hope in much the same way that we use uh, love, we use it carelessly. We, we love uh, pizza or we love uh, football. And uh, we have a, a kind of a words fail us there. We use hope in the same way. Hope does not mean, biblically, holding on to some unrealistic, uh, wishful uh, thought. I, I hope so-and-so wins the World uh, Cup. Of course, we already know who did that, but... And we also know, and many of us hoped, who would win the World Series. And we already know that, but it's a matter of, you know, hoping who's going to win the Super Bowl now, I suppose. Or we hope that it snows on Christmas. I looked outside this morning and saw no sign. But when you look at it from a Christian perspective, from the believer's perspective, for the people of God, 
Hope is not that at all. Hope is, in fact, the confident expectation of something yet realized that will happen. It is not wishful thinking. But to see this and understand it, we need to see not only uh, what we hope for that will come in the future, but we have to see what God has done already in the past and even what he's doing today in the present. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah is asking a question. He's, He's actually stating something aloud that he knows is being asked around him, and that is, would the coming Babylonian exile prove that God could not or would not deliver his people because they had been too sinful? Of course, Isaiah's answers are resounding no. The coming of Babylon to destroy Israel did not signal a change in God or God's plan or God's working with Israel. In fact, it was going to put an exclamation point on it that his people could trust him to deliver. So in Isaiah 40, if you'll turn to your text in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see three major movements in the text. Comfort, preparation, and glory. First, comfort, uh, in verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her uh, sins. I mean, it doesn't take uh, much for life, to spiral into a state of uh, chaos, from simple deadlines and day-to-day requirements to the overwhelming unknowns and the unimaginable, really, things that happen to people on a daily basis. I can assure you that either in here or in the sound of my uh, voice, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, was not or perhaps will not be a happy, happy day. And yet, to say that looking at our world or even the things in our own lives produces anxiety would be an understatement. But for those of us who believe, even if our circumstances are a little bit rocky perhaps, Christ is our rock and our ever-present comfort in life. And we can confidently say that our comfort is found in our Creator and not in our circumstances. And so Isaiah spells this out when Israel's people were scattered and in despair because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion. God punished them by raising up nations to destroy their land. And the the people were left desolate, and their leaders were taken captive. You remember the story of of, uh, Daniel and his friends. They were just among those who were taken away. And the poorest remained behind. They lacked uh, even the most basic things, like their farms had been burned out, their shelters. They had little protection and, and no leadership. 
the whole book of Jeremiah is essentially Jeremiah mourning over the, the tragedy uh, that he wrote in Lamentations. And, and still, it's worse. It's worse than merely simply having the city laid uh, to waste and the people scattered, because in addition to the city, the temple was also destroyed, leaving them without access, their ability to worship uh, God, leaving them in desperate need. And even worse than that, Jeremiah wrote that God brought this on them because of their sin. In uh, Lamentations 2.5, he said, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. I want you to look again at, at verse 2 in Isaiah 40, though. He says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. I love this word here, uh, tenderly. This is the word that is used in the Hebrew uh, text of a, a mother speaking to its child. This is how this is. But it's even more than that. This is the word that's used of Boaz as he speaks to Ruth. He's speaking tenderly. It's close. It's intimate. It's affectionate. God is saying to Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people who need, who need comforting. And even though Jeremiah, as he lamented the destruction of Jerusalem, even in that moment, as uh, we read elsewhere in, in Scripture, hope grew within him and when he says, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what is it that he called to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my per portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So first, we see that God is reaching to us in comfort. Perhaps it is that you need comfort today. It may be a doctor's result saying that the tests have some abnormalities. Or in the case of uh, Barb, they can't get results at all because of the medication that she is taking. Perhaps it's your bank is letting you know that uh, your accounts are getting a little short. Perhaps an accident, an injury, perhaps a relationship that's souring. But whatever it is, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted uh, by God. I mean, all you have to do is count the number of times we see this word comfort there, and you have this notion that God is a comforting 
God. And we see this all the way back in Isaiah. But second, there's also preparation. So in Isaiah 43, it says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Perhaps you can relate again to my, my wife, uh, Barbara. So on occasion, what I have done, uh, not often, but I have done this, is I'll hire somebody to come in and clean the house. Now what that does, it's like an automatic trigger that spurs the previous 24 to 48 hours of the cleaner coming to clean the house of my wife cleaning the house. It's like, it's like no, 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 the, the purpose is so that you don't have to do that. But nevertheless, so imagine this. Imagine if company's coming over, right? The first thing you do is say, oh, they're coming over, they're coming over, that's so great. And then it's like, oh, no. <laughs> we have to get ready. We have to clean everything up. We've got to do, we've got to. So this is the notion, really, that you have. The king is coming. And they must prepare for his arrival. Now, in the ancient Near East, knowing the king or dignitary or influential person was coming, listen, they just spent, I don't know how many weeks it was, repaving 1092. In the A&E, there was no paving of roads. The roads were dirt. They were gravel. They were, the Romans had some stone uh, roads, it is true. But nevertheless, most of the roads were filled with rocks. And so when the king was coming, you didn't want the king's chariot, right, bouncing over all these rocks. They would literally clean the roads, all right? That's what they would do. They would get the rocks out of the path. They would do everything that they could, sometimes even leveling uh, the roads. They were, as it were, as we might say, rolling out the red carpet. And yet, hundreds of years passed. And the people never saw anything resembling the king is coming, resembling the hope that Isaiah had written of in his prophecy. They heard the announcement that the Lord was coming, but when would the Lord actually arrive? And it is that question that they ask that brings us to the whole notion of Advent. So we'll take like four weeks, maybe five weeks, as we prepare for uh, the celebration of Christmas, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Israelites had to wait 400 years. There was silence, waiting to see what would happen next, waiting for that voice calling out from the wilderness. Matthew tells us in various places, he says, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make the paths straight. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well 
please. So John the Baptist shows directly that the reference to his voice and the one who came uh, was from Isaiah through the preparation of our hearts by repentance as symbolized or as as demonstrated in baptism, four of which we just uh, recently celebrated. Matthew also wrote they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. To the Pharisees who had questioned John's ministry, uh, he told them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, the Pharisees thought they were righteous, and Jesus was saying, no, you're not righteous. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And even when Jesus began his ministry, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we talk about what does it mean to clear the way, to clear the, the, the path, what we're talking about is he is asking us, actually he is commanding us, repent. And those of you who have heard me speak on this before know that repent is a military command. It's a phrase that means about face. You're going one way. I want you to turn around and go the other. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to repent. And one of the things that we need to repent of is believing that there's something that we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing. We, Christ did it for us. Ours is to receive. Ours is to believe. And if we're to be welcomed into his family, made pure through his work for us, and be reconciled to God by his grace, we have to fall on that grace. We have to rely on the work of Christ, And that's the call that goes out to you today. And I trust each one of us have trusted Christ as our Savior. His grace is sufficient for you. It doesn't matter what the past has held. He can and will forgive. And so we have this notion of comfort. And then we have this idea of preparing uh, the way. Uh, but finally, we see glory. In Isaiah 40, 4 and 5, the people have been comforted. Preparation has been made. But now what of the glory? What is this place where God will once again dwell with his people? I mean, look at the text. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I mean, can we, Im can we imagine such a place? Could the Jews imagine such a place? Uh, it's undoubtedly not the Jerusalem that they New. I mean, the road leading into Jerusalem would have been a mess. It would have been steep and rocky. It would have been quite the, the climb. So, I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, let's sweep the roads, let's clear the rocks for our guests. It's another thing to say, 
uh, let's flatten that mountain. Uh, even if the Lord would return to their own Jerusalem, the type of preparation that Isaiah talks about, they could not do. They could not accomplish. Raising valleys and lowering mountains indicates the kind of preparations that would be needed to remake the earth. Just as Christ came in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, preparing a path of faith in our hearts, so too the same Christ is preparing a place for us to live with him forever. You remember, he says, I'm going to play to prepare a place for you. And the Lord comforted his disciples in that, in saying that, let not your hearts be troubled. They were troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Now, most often we call this place heaven, and I think that's an apt description. But the Apostle John also describes it as something else, as a new creation. This new creation has a new Jerusalem. Not only will the heavens be made new, but the earth itself will be made new, and everything in between. This is how John describes it in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Here is where Israel's hope and our hope come together. This new creation where the roads are smooth and where the paths are cleared, a new creation where water and trees spring forth from the desert, where sin and death, and I might add, tears are no more, where the nations gather together and worship God, a new creation where the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. I mean, it sounds wonderful, but where we're at now, I mean, that wonder quickly fades. All you got to do is do what I did this morning. I'm going, Merry Christmas, John. Let me see what happened today. You check the news and, you know, and 30 seconds in and you feel your soul begin to, to weigh down. We need hope for today. Because despair continues to cling to our lives. So where do we fit into this story? What is our hope for today? First, I think our hope is oriented toward this new creation in Christ. The Apostle Peter tells us, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This hope of the new creation addresses the problem of our broken world. Uh, You don't have to look far to see injustice. You don't have to look far. You know what? Let me state it even differently. This new creation will bring about justice. It will bring about joy and holiness and righteousness and worship. And those will be established perfectly and enjoyed by us. And everything will be made new. And I love the the, the phrase that John used, the glory of the Lord will be seen and known by all. So there is this future look at the new creation. But second, it's also towards the past because the new creation is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The wavering, we, we know what this word means. It's where we get our word wave from. That's what wave means, to go back and forth and back and forth. And what the author of Hebrew is saying is that we don't have to waver in our faith, in our belief. God has been steadfast by sending Christ. And we're reminded of this today, this Sunday, but every Christmas season. I mean, because his birth addresses the problem of our alienation from God. He has been brought or he has come near to us so that he can understand. This morning we were looking at the fish in the aquarium and yet here we have uh, God the Son becoming human so that we might have life. We've been pardoned by by God if we accept it. We've been empowered by God through His Holy Spirit. And His resurrection, that addresses our decaying uh, bodies as, as injury or illness or age uh, becomes something that, that robs us of things that we once knew. Our future hope is grounded in what Christ has already done in history. So that which we look forward to is grounded in Christ. And, and then finally, our hope is uh, not simply oriented towards the new cre- creation through the grounding of the work of Christ in the past, but we have the Holy Spirit of God present in us even now, and we see this as expressed by the Apostle Paul who wrote, hope does not put us to shame. Why? He goes on, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope is sustained as we look at God's present faithfulness to us when we see the Holy Spirit creating faith as it were, and maybe not as it were, we don't understand these deep things of God where none existed. 
That's the only way I can explain my salvation. I don't know how you look at yours, but faith to me was something that God gave to me. And then in that giving, he strengthens me with it day by day. The Holy Spirit is the one who this very day can give you glimpses into the future of the new creation because of the changed life that you live. All you have to do is look in the mirror, having been transformed by the grace of God, and you have a glimpse of what it will be in the future. A small glimpse, perhaps, but nevertheless, you understand in your heart and your soul and your mind that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, changed your life. And because Christ has come and the Spirit is here, our hope is sure. And if that's not getting a handle on Christmas, I don't know what would be. The God of comfort is here. And even now he speaks tenderly to you, to me. We celebrate Christmas today the day when Jesus Christ was born. And yet, even in looking at his birth, it is impossible for us not to telescope into the future and see his sacrifice. We look into the future, we look into the past, and we look, when we look through the lens of Christ, what we see is what was promised by the angel, what was spoken by the angel, peace on earth. And we have peace with God if we have trusted him for our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And while it is true that we have to wait until the new creation, Christ's birth is so much more than a celebration. It is the present that God has given to us. Or more precisely, it is the presence of God with us. Father, Lord, we, we celebrate this day, even though we know that ultimately the celebration leads to mourning, but even that mourning leads to another celebration. And finally, Lord, to our resurrection and ultimately to spending eternity at peace with you, glorifying you. Lord, just reveling in your mercy and your grace and your compassion. Lord, for those who are struggling today, be it illness, injury, finance, relationship, medical issues, so many other things, speak tenderly to us. Comfort. Give us the comfort that only we can have through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose precious and holy name we pray. Amen.